Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores stories of grief, the gratitude that lifts us, and the greatness that unexpectedly surfaces from our experiences. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. When I met Sally years ago in a prenatal yoga class, she made a strong impression on me. I learned that her husband was gravely ill, and long after that yoga class, I thought of Sally and her family from time to time. Our paths continued to cross as our children attended the same preschool and years later the same middle school. I always felt a strong connection to Sally and was drawn to her independent spirit. Her story of grief is both compelling and beautiful, and I'm grateful that she took the time to talk with me and share. You know that whole it takes a village thing? Everybody did their part in filling that void of my mom not being around. And so I think it did bring me much closer to my grandparents, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I was really close to my grandmother. I used to have dreams about my mom, dreams about my grandmother, and I actually haven't had one in a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember when, but I had a dream about my grandmother. Mm -hmm. My kids have never met this grandmother, but in the dream, my kids are like, you won't believe who's here. Look who's here. Like they just opened the door and this woman walks in and it's my grandmother. Oh my God. And I was just so excited and beside myself. I was just so, I can't even tell you how thrilling it was. And then as she got closer to me, she wasn't her. That's always the dream, you know? I don't know if you've had those, but I've had these dreams where you see this person you've lost. Usually I would have those dreams about my mom, but I have had them about my grandmother too. She's there and you're surprised. Oh my gosh, how can this be? This is so amazing and so cool. And then either she doesn't fully materialize or she won't speak to you. I was just kind of grateful that even though it was that same ending, you know, it brought her back in my world last night. Sebastian visits me in my dreams sometimes. It's usually really sexual. Yeah. And I have guilt around that. And it usually ends up being a little bit of, well, if I were back, what would you do? Because I'm remarried. It's so uncomfortable. And then, of course, I wake up next to my husband and I feel like, wow, it's weird to have had a passionate dream about my late husband when I have no complaints about my <laughs> my current relationship in that way. There are ways that my current husband and I fit together really differently than my late husband and I did. I was also younger. There are things about my late husband that I actively miss in my current relationship. And there are things about my current relationship that I'm like, oh, if I'd been older, actually raising a family with this person, this works pretty well. He's a pretty stable guy, which is not something that I necessarily always bring to the table. And I appreciate that. And Sebastian wasn't. He was very artistic and whimsical. To gain perspective on her grief, I asked Sally to share the story of her time with Sebastian. I met Sebastian when I was 20. 
my sister's boyfriend, Osvaldo, was working at Fernando's Hideaway. And he's like, hey, it's not a great job, but I can get you a job as a coat check for Friday and Saturday nights. It's pretty busy. You just get tips and minimum wage. But I needed a job. And so I would bring my school books and sit at this bumping salsa club. And Sebastian, I immediately was like, who's that beautiful guy? He was a six foot five Venezuelan bouncer. He was just super kind and always sparking up conversations and really fun to talk to. So we talked a bunch. While I was working there, my leg healed. I started actually dancing and partying late. There was a big party there that stayed until sunrise pretty much every night of the weekend. Yeah, we started dating not long after I started working there. He was playing pretty hard at the time, was smoking and drinking and staying up late and dancing. And six months into dating him, he came home one night late, coughing up blood. You know, went to the doctor, finds out pretty quickly that he had esophageal cancer. His treatments got quite serious. He had his esophagus and 60% of his stomach removed. And for me, it was kind of, I mean, it was scary, but I was 21 at the time that this happened. And so I don't know how real any of it really felt. I was magnetized toward him and his energy. The whole group that was around him also, we had big meals together all the time. I mean, Sebastian, we would lie in bed and watch funny movies with his friends every night. I would sneak into the hospital and hide under the covers when the doctors would come and check. <laughs> After about nine months of treatment, was in remission, and we just continued to date for about four and a half years. Did some traveling together, moved in together, and then the summer that I was 25, I came home from work one afternoon, and he was just a ghost, and he told me that his father had um, gotten into a car accident oh. and passed away. Obviously, he was in shock. He flew down immediately to Venezuela, like, the next day, and I flew down a few days after. I just had to give notice at work and whatnot, um, and we stayed down there for several weeks, and Sebastian was gone. He went from being a loving, playful, charismatic person to being pretty vacant. It was really painful for him, and he didn't hesitate to show it. He was kind of emotionally absent. He was just so deep in it. He wasn't like sitting around crying. He was just hurting. We had a nice time when we were down in Venezuela. He had moments of animation, but it was, you know, night and day. I have actually really beautiful memories of it, but it was my first interaction so close with death. Upon returning home from Venezuela, Sally got some big news. When we got back, I found out maybe three weeks later that I was pregnant, that we'd conceived a baby while we were down there. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was unplanned. It was interesting when I told Sebastian, I thought he would be equally like, whoa, this is not good timing or not even necessarily what I want. He was 34. He was in a different place, but we had to decide what to do about that. We decided to not have a baby, and actually, um, until the day before we'd scheduled the abortion, we were planning on not having the baby, and then at the last minute. It was such a, like, a hopeful thing for him. It brought life to him, just talking about it, being excited about it, and it was hard for me to say no to that. Right. You know, I was like, oh, this is the partner that I miss. I mean, it hadn't been that long, but it's hard when you so, see somebody go into the shock of grief. It's hard to 
know how long is it gonna last like what is this gonna be like now is this the new you we were at an abortion clinic and told the person no we just changed our minds and she started crying oh. and was like i'm being so unprofessional right now but you have to understand this never happens to me the minute we made the decision it was this is the right decision it felt really good to say yes but i did immediately go and tell Sebastian, you need to go to the doctor. I do not want to be a single mother. Knowing his past, he did. And then a lot of the rest of it is a blur for me. I don't know whether it's my specific memory or whether it's the result of trauma, but I know he lost his health insurance. When he went to Venezuela, he stopped working for five weeks and missed a payment of the insurance. And when we came back, his insurance cut him immediately, a pre-existing condition. So pre-existing condition, they were like, you're off. And so he did go to the doctor. He got a huge bill for it, but he was like, so far, so good. He was still in remission. And I was working full-time and so tired. I don't even know how people with multiple children do it. I just remember passing out on the library floor every day to take a nap in my office because there were no cots for napping. The pregnancy went really well. It was really fun for me. You know, I loved it pretty much immediately. And then born a healthy, happy baby. We decided to get married and waited until he got his Spanish citizenship because we planned to move to Granada where his uncle and cousins lived. So we set that for August. He was starting to have stomach pains and wasn't sleeping well, but I was very, very much caught up in that I have a new baby. And so how mindful of it, I can't even recall. I remember him feeling like he was physically declining and setting up some doctor's appointments and not having insurance. And that being an issue because we were like, do we wait to get the insurance or do we wait or not, and then risk me not being able to be a resident and work when we moved to Spain. So he came down the night before our wedding and was like, I just went to the doctor. I'm no longer in remission. I have active esophageal cancer. It's metastasized. It's stage four. Do you still want to marry me? I was like, yeah, of course I do. Yeah, well, let's get married, especially for the insurance. Like, I mean, yeah. whatever other motivations, I was like, yeah, let's do this immediately. And my office was able to get him on insurance right away. We came back down to Portland after the wedding, which was beautiful. And all of our people were near us. It was great. And immediately it was just hospital, hospital, like figure out what's going on. And, and that's when it was basically like you have six months to live. And I didn't buy it. I did not believe that that could happen. And we ended up flying to Massachusetts to go to the Cushy Institute for Macrobiotic Healing because none of the Western doctors are saying they can help us. They say they can help us. So we spent a week there. It's probably the wrong choice because it was really taxing on him and it didn't seem to help. And one of his best friends was in naturopathic school and acupuncture school, and she brought in every person in the city. And there's a really great community of healers in this city to help him. I mean, everything. Color therapist. <laughs> we tried it all. Color therapist? Yeah, everything. It was, it was wild and really, really showed up for him in a beautiful way. The last two weeks he spent in the hospital in mid-September, he died. Yeah, 
I don't know. You can't, you, it's hard to like imagine what an ideal death would be like, but in some ways I think about, I mean, except for the pain, because he was in a lot of pain. I think about his death because there was an acknowledgement of what was going on. People had the time to show up for it, but it wasn't so long that it just went on for years and years and you just got used to suffering, you know? Like, yeah. It was pretty quick. Two days before he died, I was like, whoa, this is really happening. Like, there's no, there's no way to fix this. And then the day before he died, he was like, really well. And my friend Carla at the end, I was like, whoa, this is all going the other direction now. Like, I'm just on a roller coaster here. Yeah. And she's like, no, this is really normal. It's kind of amazing, but usually there's the day before you die where you have energy and he said goodbye to everybody. He got to say his goodbyes. He got to be with everybody that he loved. There were some differing opinions about how to lay Sebastian to rest. His family were all foreigners. They wanted to bury his body. And I was like, no, he told me he wanted to be cremated. and I'm not going to bury his body. This isn't even where he's from. I put him in a guayavera that he wore all the time. He liked to dress nice. You know, I met him at a salsa club. Like, yeah. he liked to look nice, and he was a very handsome man, so I wanted him to feel good. You know, I wanted his body to look the way that he would want it to look and for people to remember him in that way. Terrell told me that it was my right, if I wanted to, to take him his body over in, in our own car. Uh -huh. And my parents had a Suburban, not thinking about how they might handle that I was like oh mom and dad will you guys drive me and Sebastian over to the crematorium it was like a full moon in September I just laid in the back of the suburban with him your mother-in-law came and stayed with you Yes. That was challenging. We were in a one-bedroom apartment, and I was not used to living with my mom. But Sebastian felt really strongly about it because his dad had just passed right. away, and it was going to be really helpful for her. And it ended up being great. She did come back several times to live with me after he passed away and help me because my parents helped me get a house, and I was paying a mortgage and working full-time, and she was my daycare. It was so hard because we were competing in a weird way. If I was suffering and she could see that I was suffering, she let me know she was suffering worse. And mm. she spent all day alone with a baby. And so when I would come home from work, she would really want to talk to me. Details that I didn't want or need. That's not the way I parent. And I didn't care, and I would try for a while to listen, but ultimately, when I had been at work all day, I wanted to come home and spend time with my baby, and it was so hard. I was agitated by how much attention she needed, and she was agitated by how little attention I had to give her, and we were both really suffering. I went back to work a month after he passed away. My maternity leave was five months, and my mom came down to live with me. She retired and stayed with me four days a week. And I started taking Fridays off. At that point, I started working Monday through Thursday. My mom would take the train home Thursday night. She came down every year for, at first it was like three months. I think she came down like four times for long periods. And every time I sort of requested that it get shorter. 
it was a lot for me. And Sebastian had this huge community of friends that were just really beautiful and supportive people, but none of them had kids. They were still living our young 20s lifestyle, and they were amazing. They would show up, but they would show up at all hours of the night and maybe <laughs> ask me if I wanted to go out and not remember. I mean, it was just hard. And also, I didn't feel social. I didn't feel compelled to put energy out into the world at that point. I was really surviving, and I cut a lot of people off. It was too much energy. Being social is hard enough for me. I'm not such an extrovert, and this was a very extroverted community. They loved Sebas, and they kind of wanted to keep his energy and party going. And it wasn't that they didn't have solace. I mean, they showed up for his memorials that I would do every year, and it was really beautiful. I just became really insular. Oh, I imagine that was immensely helpful to have your mom there. It was. It was hard, too. Our relationship wasn't perfect by any means, and I was just so sad that I think I wasn't a really good person to be around. And it must have been really hard for her to see her baby be so oh, sad. Yeah. And she had so much fun. I mean, she, you know, she was the first grandbaby and my mom lived with her. My dad, she spent a lot of time with my parents yeah. just to help me out and get some headspace to not be a parent for long weekends. It was really hard for her, and she was amazing. She didn't fight back ever, and I that was kind of my mode. Was I would be tired, and I would get, you know, like, you have a baby. You're exhausted. You have a baby by yourself. You're even more exhausted. And then you, like, add working full-time and, like, being in active grief. I didn't have the foundation to get through it in a positive way. Like, and now, I, like, I have a yoga practice. I have things that work for me to keep my head up in some perspective that I think that if I was thrown another curveball like that, I would manage it in a better, healthier way. It's funny that we tend to fault ourselves for not having the infrastructure to deal with these curveball tragedies. As we get older, we start to create wills and we start to prepare for all kinds of possibilities or eventualities, even older we get. But when you're young, I mean, who prepares for that? I have a lot of sympathy for where I was at. I don't think that I was very mentally, emotionally healthy in my life at that time. I just burnt the candle from both ends between work and partying, and I didn't necessarily have like a strong connection to my spirituality or self-care. So I didn't know what I needed to, even if everything fell out beneath me, I didn't know what I needed to hold myself up, except for a lot of quiet time and alone time, which is why I ended up cutting a lot of people off. Because that was the only time that I was like, I feel my body, I know who I am, I'm not trying to be, you know? It was the only time that I felt like, here's my baby, here's me, and this is all that matters right now. And if I fault myself, it's just because as a parent, we see our kids growing up and we see things about them that you're like, oh, I wonder if I'd done this a little differently, who you might be differently. She took care of me a lot emotionally and really tiptoed around my sadness, you know, didn't want to provoke it. She's very conscientious of how much space she takes up and taking care of other people in a really beautiful way. I think it's one of her most amazing qualities, but I sometimes wish that she would put herself first. And it's something that we're working through right now. It's okay. You need to, like, express what your needs are and not 
worry so much about what other people need. It's okay also to be like, I said what I need and now I'm going to like compromise because I want everybody to be happy. But like getting your own needs out, it's a weakness that she has. I think a lot of children do. Maybe it's a weakness, but maybe it's a strength. Oh too. yeah, for sure it's both. You know, I only became aware, I think in the last few years after all this time that, you know, I have always protected my father's feelings, my mm. father's emotional state. I never questioned or criticized how he chose to manage his grief or how he chose to help us travel through that loss. And so I think I was protecting him. And you were 10? Uh-huh. Wow. My sister was three. And then I look at my own children, my oldest, I feel like he, I started to see in him that he protects. It's very subtle. It's a very subtle thing. They don't want to criticize us, and they don't want to question us. They don't want to create pain for us. It's so sweet and amazing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can see my two boys duking it out all day long, loving and strangling each other. And kids can be really hard on us in other ways, you yeah, know? Yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of protection that kids do towards their parents. Yeah, I agree with that fully. And I really only became aware of that kind of recently. So I remember wiping tears from my eyes. Pretty sure that I was breastfeeding and I was crying. Yeah. Which is like well, pretty common. That's such an emotional <laughs> I know. It's very intimate. Act, right? Yes. It's the time that you're pretty much just staring at this life that yeah. is left behind. Yeah. How do you unfold a child's understanding of not having I mean, she has a right. father figure in her life, and... She has a dad. I mean, has David dad. has adopted her, um, and he's been a really wonderful dad to her for seven years. Oh, yeah. He only adopted her this last year, but, I mean, we've been living together and married, and part of that was we really wanted it to be separate from our marriage. We had a really beautiful adoption ceremony for her this last year, um, and he really wowed me <laughs> it was really special for all of us I remember the first time she saw David naked and was like what is that I was like oh yeah she's not really been around men she was like two two and a half and was like how come Ella Beast Papa comes and picks her up what's this Papa thing I have a friend who chose to have a baby by herself her son's three now and he would start asking her about it and I was like oh man that's so hard but different because she went into it by choice and I was in grief. I just created this weird mythology for her that I didn't quite understand why I was doing. I didn't know how to talk about grief with a two-year-old and I, what I should have done was go out and get a book or talk to somebody but I was mostly just spending that time in my own therapy if I had any free time or free money. But I told her because he died on the full moon in September that he was on the moon, not realizing that that was setting, its setting, own yes. can of worms. Yes. Yeah. And she asked about it a lot. And when she'd see the moon, she'd be like, oh, my papa. And then at maybe three and a half was like, here's what cancer is. Here's what happened to your dad. I didn't really have the tools to communicate anything else but just here's the mythology here's the beautiful poetic side and then here's the other sides here's kind of the technical details of what happened to your dad and here's what I think and it was that he's looking out for you and he's with us and also like I don't know <laughs> 
it would be interesting to see what she would have to say about all this. We did start going to the Dougie Center when she was five, and they were amazing. The Dougie Center is also known as the National Center for Grieving Children and Families. It's a nonprofit based in Portland, Oregon, that offers support and services to grieving children and young adults, and at no cost. I remember her when she started kindergarten, me picking her up, and she was in a conversation with Marcel about what cremation was. And me being like, oh, (laughs) this is awesome. (laughs) This kid's going to be so weird. (laughs) When we did the adoption paperwork, I didn't really realize that his name would just not be on her birth certificate, her papa's name, and that was really hard for me. Oh, is that what happens? Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. But yeah, I kind of just thought it was like, oh, this person is dead. So therefore, this person is showing up and is being her dad. And instead, it was that person never existed. This is her dad. And I feel really strongly that that's not cool. Mm -hmm. And I know why it's there. You know, it protects a lot of kids from people that they don't feel safe with. And that's why it exists that way. But... Fortunately, I have several copies of her birth certificate from before that. Her birth certificate, her Spanish birth certificate, it just says Sebastián Garrido. But yeah, that was hard. I mean, I found myself signing lawyer's paper and bawling. Like, and David, like, I thought this is what you wanted. Oh. <laughs> I mean, like, well, it's not that simple. <laughs> that poor guy, I mean, what he's been through just to show up for me. He was with me through the most of the mourning process. He has an ex-wife that he's not mourning over. So it's incongruous in that way, you know. He was helping me hang photographs for Sebastian's memorials. When did the two of you connect? We met a year after he died. We started dating four months after that. I only dated one other person before that. I know, it's kind of dangerous. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to give lots of space, I think, just to have healthy perspective. But he's been amazing. How is it with your mother-in-law of your late husband coming to live with your new husband? Yeah. How is that? I mean... It's amazing. I mean, I'm so lucky. Once we got over those first four or five years, and we really had a hard time. Before she would leave, we'd tend to get in the huge fights. And she finally acknowledged after four or five years that she's 85. She gets really stressed before traveling. It's stressful for her to spend hours on a plane with people speaking to her in English. Her back hurts and she's sad to leave her grandbaby, who was her you know, late son's baby. All the emotions come up and it ended up translating into us fighting. Yeah which is really sad and really hard, but we don't do that anymore. And it's because I think we both are like, just really sad to say goodbye and can just focus on that instead of finding things wrong with whatever's going on. She loves David so much. She's just basically like, yeah, you know, if she can't have my son, which would obviously be the ideal. Like, David's pretty much oh my gosh. the next best thing. I know, I, like, he's really good with her and with them. They all really love him, which That's, makes me feel really lucky. That is so beautiful. I know. It really is. It sounds like you're all really lucky. I feel that way, yeah, which is the irony. And one of the things when I think about why I like to talk about grief is just amazing how much perspective 
it just comes into focus when you reflect on where you've been or where you could be. We have that shift in the grieving process where we start to recognize what we're grateful for, yeah. what we are totally. fortunate for, and recognizing who's showing up and what's working. And these crazy family dynamics that are so unusual <laughs> work out. Absolutely. And it was really challenging. Like, and I had to deal with a two and a half year old, three and a half year old that are just bonkers. <laughs> yeah. And like in an emotionally fragile state. In some ways, not really like having the perspective to be like, oh, I'm going to do this on my own and it's going to be so freaking hard was such a gift because I'm so grateful that I just had that. I have him in my life and I want him in my life. I don't want to bury that. Like he was really important to who I am. And I do think about him, not every day. I think about him almost every day though. I look at her and sure. she looks so much like him. She's got her wall covered with photos of him. And of course, you always have the person that you lost. When Sally meets someone who has lost a loved one, she feels an immediate connection. It doesn't matter who they are. I just instantly love them really strongly. It's just this crazy experience that you don't know how much it will change you and impact you and who you'll be on the other side until you've been through it. And so there's just this kind of wakefulness around those relationships that's just like, oh, you get this thing that I also get. When I'm around people who've been through it, it's not like I want to talk about it. It's just there's something in that connection with people who've been through it. I don't have to explain anything. You just understand in a way that's so visceral and cellular that yeah. there aren't really words to, you know? Right. You can almost just sit together alone and not say anything. We can just understand. But ironically, Sebastian's mother, I was so challenged by that relationship. She'd gotten a double whammy, and the whammy of losing your child, which is something that I don't ever want to experience. And I think it would be fair to say that, that any parent would rather lose their own life than their child's life because your child is your ultimate reflection of self. And the ultimate expression of love yes, is yes. your child. Yeah. So if, but if ultimately we're all grappling with our own mortality, your child is your legacy. I talk about death a lot because I'm in yoga a lot, mm -hmm. and that's something that we talk about. Is it? Yes. <laughs> We end, every, we end every session in corpse pose. But I've never heard it called corpse pose. Shavasana is preparation for death. Really? Yeah. It's the end of every class, which is why in like modern practices they're like, oh, it's not really yoga because you're not spending the time that you're supposed to spend there, which is the integration phase. Yeah, I mean, it ultimately it's all about coming to terms with the ultimate fear, which is your own death arriving there in a way that you're set up well for either your next life or you get to move beyond it. All of the, you know, the cycle of suffering. I've become a little bit obsessed with death. I think about death a lot, partially because of the yoga training. I actively think about in the Shavasana, like preparation for letting go. And I like the idea, I think because what was hard about losing Sebastian was that there was never a moment where we were like, goodbye. Yeah. Like, we didn't—I mean, we, we said it to each other. Like, I held him while he died, but it was never, like, a look at each other in the eyes and, like, really acknowledge it. And I like the idea of being in a place, whatever age I'm at, where I can be like, this is happening now, 
And I'm okay with that because this is part of what happens. I walk away from those meetings with people who are going through it and I feel really guilty because I feel so light when I walk away. And I'm so grateful that I am not in their shoes. You recognize the distance that you've traveled from, oh, God, from that yes. point. I basically look at them. It's not that they don't know what's going on because they clearly do. And in some ways, I just feel like they're so much more awake to what's happening than I was. But I just think of them as about to walk into a dark tunnel, maybe starting to be in it. I'm so grateful to be on the other side of it. I imagine there are lessons that were immediate that you learned right away. And I'm sure so many years later, there are all these lessons you're continuing to learn from your grief. Well, the immediate lesson was, I mean, it's the cliche thing, but that you can't control anything. That was the first thing was just like, I think I was young enough that I also felt like a superwoman and we were convinced we were going to just like heal and fix it. I still have that kind of youthful energy about my life. It didn't dampen that for me. Like it didn't dampen my resourcefulness and my desire to make the most out of situations and try to find resolution for issues. But it did give me the insight that I'm not sure I didn't have, but I definitely didn't have it in my face like that before. And then sometimes there's nothing you can do. And then you just have to adjust. Do you think the responsibility that you had as a single mom of such a young child just took the reins and defined where you needed to go to the point where that either managed your grief in a way or were you able to deal with it while you were going through that or did it kind of push it to the side because your priority was this young child? Yeah. I definitely tried to be like a really solid and focused mom because I didn't know that I wanted to be a mom and I just immediately loved it with all my heart. I didn't have the postpartum depression at all. It was more just, aha, this is really fulfilling. Certainly, yeah, like I want my time back. I want to like be clean, but I didn't get to focus on myself. And I think because of that, I think I still have a lot of post-traumatic stress that I'm like still integrating. Part of it was just having a piece of him with me still. I see him in her smile, I see him in her laughter, in her love of dance, in her sense of humor. I loved him so much and I feel him with me every day because of her. In the beginning, it's obvious how people hold space around you and help you. I wanna know what things were the most helpful in the beginning the most helpful was just celebration. I definitely had a community around me that loved my partner and loved me and loved my daughter. That was really helpful. It was helpful to be with people who knew him and loved him and wanted to talk about him and didn't want to tiptoe around me. The people who helped me the most were the ones who would just, like, really show up. And especially because I had a little kid. It was nice when they showed up. They weren't avoiding stuff, but they were, like, showing up with some fun. Because I wanted my daughter to have a joyful childhood. And, yeah. it, was, and it was hard sometimes to be the fun person all the time. My brother, for example, he flew down... 
as a complete surprise four different times from Alaska in the first few months of Sebastian dying and just like the best uncle ever, you know, and his wife, Miranda, the same. I mean, my parents were down all the time and they really did. They just prioritized because I could kind of self-manage, but she needed to just have a joyful childhood. And I think that that's how, with a friend of mine who lost somebody, like I was just trying to help with his daughter, you know, offering it, not imposing it. I probably could have imposed upon him more. Don't tiptoe. Don't be afraid of the conversations. Yeah. I wish I'd done more of just like not even asking permission, but just like, hey, I'm taking your kids out now. We're going to go ice skating at the mall. Something stupid, you know, just to like get them some time. Because one thing that grief does is it makes you really freaking tired. It's a new language. It's exhausting. Do you think sometimes people who are grieving like that they don't even want to give up the one bright light they have, which is a lot of times is their child. Mm. And so they just want to spend as much time with that person as possible. I mean, I, I had friends who really showed up that sometimes I was like, I want to play too. You're helping me by helping her, but I also want to have fun. So yeah, no, I mean, everybody's different. Even if temporarily you're like, oh no, I don't. I need my kid next to me. It's like, well, your kid needs a healthy childhood. And being around somebody who's in grief all the time is not healthy for any forming child. Yeah. Like, it just isn't. And it's not to say, like, you should avoid being around somebody in grief. Like, and how can you avoid that if you're in a situation where you, like, are single parenting and have lost somebody? I'm grateful for all my friends who really showed up because, you know, she's definitely, like, has the stamp of, being raised by a grieving mother on her. Like, she's deep. <laughs> but it's intimidating sometimes. I'm just like, okay, now let's laugh. <laughs> and maybe that's personality, but I think it's not. A little bit of sadness is always in that relationship, but a lot of, a lot of joy and a lot of love, of course. I read one quote about a guy who lost his son, and he said something like, you know, my son's already died once, but when people refuse to talk about him, he dies again. I so appreciate that. People who don't know me well might think that, like, I'm stuck in the past. And I'm not. Like, I just am not, but I don't want him. Like, he is so a part of my life, and I don't want to let go of that. Yeah. I don't want to experience losing a sibling, and I don't want to experience losing a child. My mom lost her mom the year before Sebastian died, and... I look at my mom sometimes and she's getting older and I just, my heart just like melts. Like I just want to hold my mother because I know how hard that was for her. I don't think there should be a scale to our grief. I really feel for their loss, um, for my mother-in-law and my brother-in-law a lot. This grief, it's like a flowing river, you know, there are bends in, in the, the path of this river and, and as you're walking along, it greets you again and then it turns away from you and comes back. And I can see that the grief is something that you still contend with, but it's different now. Mm -hmm. For me, when you talk about that river of grief, like I have a hard time sometimes separating my greatest joy from my deepest grief. That river for me is completely intertwined. I don't know what triggers it so much as like, I kind of feel like I'm in it all the time. And not in like a heavy, freaky way but in a way where I'm, I am more aware, I have more perspective 
personally than I used to about just the preciousness of our daily experience. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. Your support allows us to keep doing this work, delivering insights and inspiration. We'd be pleased as punch if you share our show with your friends and anyone you think could benefit from listening in. We're excited to share more stories with you, so please join us again 